So good morning, Eastside family. We want to let our children ages two years old through first grade make their way in that direction to junior worship. And if you're new or a guest here and you have children in that age range, just kind of follow the adults going that direction. I'm going to ask the rest of you to take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10 as we continue our series in Joshua. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of a very important aspect of our worship assembly. We don't pass the plates as was our tradition for decades. We actually make it possible for you to worship God with your offering in four ways. You can mail a check to the church address. You can give an automatic draft through your bank. You can go online to our website, follow the easy instructions there. Or if you're here in person, you can drop off your contribution in the box there in the middle on your way out. And if you are not here in person, but you're with us live streaming, um, I'm just, it means the world to us to know that you're a part of our gathering this morning. Joshua chapter 10. As we've been following in the story of Joshua and God's people, we've seen them after so long of waiting and longing to, you might say, just go back home. They finally come back to the, the promised land, the land that God has given them. But wouldn't it be weird if you went on vacation and you came home and who are these people in my house? What have they done with my house? The Israelites came back. These are, the, these are God's people. If you're new to the Bible story, when I say the word Israelites, we're talking about what is called them the people of God that God was using. And you see their story all throughout the Old Testament. But when they came back to this land that God had promised them, there was a huge population of people that had just occupied and were living in this whole area and they weren't nice people they were very evil people and so as you follow the story of the Israelites you get into the book of Joshua it's it's a war story you might could say it's a story of of battles of the Israelites against these people that are living in the land and we'll just call them the basic term for them are the Canaanites so this is a story of battles and a story of war of the Israelites going against these people to take back their land. And they haven't just been randomly, let's just go in and do whatever we want to do. They're following a battle strategy. If you notice this, you work in the book of Joshua, we've been, we've been seeing it already. They cut right, they crossed the Jordan, they cut right in the center of the land. So they split the country in half and then they go on a southern campaign. And then they go on a northern campaign. We've seen the battle of Jericho already here on Sunday morning. We've seen the battle of Ai and then last week we looked at a very painful battle of the Israelites taking on five kings and, and their armies and their five city-states. So now as we continue on and we're going to be reading in chapter 10 and verse 29 we, we see Joshua and the Israelites are now moving into this southern part of the campaign. And the, the question is, why in the world has God put this in the Bible? Why has he given us these war stories? 
And what life lessons can we learn from them? So let's enter the battle. Verse 29 of chapter 10. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and his king into the hand of Israel and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. And they laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam king of Gezar came up to Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Now if I were to keep on reading which I'm not going to do. I've actually assigned that to you in your life groups. You're going to see what I just read. You're going to just see a continual repeat of one battle after the other. And it's rough. As Bob did a great job in connecting communion to our lesson today. It's, you cringe. If this were a movie, you'd cringe to watch it. It's a painful story. It's hand-to-hand, sword-to-sword combat. And then the Israelites are taking the land for themselves. After chapter 10 in the southern campaign, we move into chapter 11. And we see the story of the northern campaign. And then if you were to read chapter 8, it's a list of 31 kings. It's a list of all the kings and their city-states. That's what they really were. We could call them kingdoms. But cities at that time were many kingdoms. It's a list of 31 kings and their kingdoms defeated. Every city they attacked, and you read this in chapters 10, 11, and 12, you read, it, you read the words of it, it says they completely destroyed everyone, putting to death everyone to sword, not sparing anyone who breathes, it states in the text, and it's including men, women, and children, leaving no survivors and taking the land for themselves. It's a hard story. We've seen movies like this. But what's hard about this story, these are God's people that are doing this, the Israelites. As they are being led by God's chosen commander, General Joshua. And Joshua is not this rogue guy going off on his own, doing his own things. He is following the very instructions of God. And not only is he following the instructions of God, but God is, as God promised to Joshua, right there along Joshua's side and the other Israelite soldiers fighting with them. So, when I was reading through this, every time I read through this, it just brought up a lot of questions. My journal entry from last year when I was reading Joshua As I read back through it, it was, I got a lot of questions, more questions than I do have answers. And it's things I think that we prefer not to look at. We prefer not to read. We prefer a preacher not to preach a sermon about because it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't 
fit well into our Christian narrative. Which you wonder, what is our Christian narrative formed from when Scripture doesn't fit well into it? It's what I call, as you see on the screen, it's the elephant in the room. It's that, it's really big. I mean, you can't miss it. But you just pretend like you don't see it because you don't want to. But we're going to talk about it. In my journal, I have these questions from what I just read in the rest of these chapters on these battles. I ask myself... And I've done, I've read Joshua so many times, but again I was asking, how do you reconcile this with a God of love and compassion? As I'm reading these stories, I'm hearing and seeing Jesus in the New Testament, love your enemy, pray for your enemy, turn the other cheek, and I'm seeing God send his people into war to wipe out a people. How do you reconcile what we see in the Old Testament with the Jesus in the New Testament? And I read these stories in the morning and I'm journaling through them and then I get the paper and I open it up and I'm wondering how is this not different from what I'm reading about Putin and his soldiers and what they're doing in the Ukraine moving into a land that they say this is our land fighting and killing people how is that different? How is it different from, and I, we lived so many years in Czechoslovakia and we studied the history. How, how, is, how are these stories different from what Hitler did in Czechoslovakia and so many other European nations? How is this unlike the genocide we read of not so long ago that we remember in Rwanda? Just an attempt to take out a whole group of people. How can I, and this is all in my journal, how do, how do I, I wrote down, how do I criticize the Muslims for their holy jihad because they're just following their holy book, the Quran, when my holy book has stories that are a bit similar. I say a bit because I give myself a little slack there. And so you're kind of, you're kind of understanding unbelievers who hear today's sermon or read today's stories and they go, are you kidding me? This is the God that you believe in? How do you answer that? How do you respond to that? I don't know. So let's go on to chapter 13. No. I can't. I can't. And you, you may be saying, and it's fair, Eddie, I come to church to be encouraged and strengthened in my faith, <laughs> not to be filled with doubts from such questions. Oh, just hold on, because God, God has something brilliant and incredible to show us out of the darkness of this story. But if you struggle with it, 
I, as a guy who's been doing the Bible thing for a long time, I still struggle with it. I wish I could show you how many pages of, of written thoughts and questions and challenges are in my journal, my studies from last year. But it's through this struggle that as we try to find answers to this elephant in the room, in the room of Joshua's story, that we five, find five very important foundational truths that answer these hard questions. Now, nobody ever taught me to do that. I think it just gets in your blood system when you're a preacher. There's five points I have for you. They all start with a P. It's for your memory. I believe the response to what we see in the book of Joshua is five things. Number one, it's God's punishment for sin. Number two, it's God's protection of his people. Number three, it's God's preference for all to be saved. Number four, we see God's provision for sin in Christ. And number five, we see God's proclamation of the gospel. And I worked very hard to get all of those into today's sermon. But we can't do a four-hour sermon today. If you want me to. No, I couldn't. So we are just going to look at the first point this morning and I'm going to do my best to get these other four points squeezed into a timely sermon next Sunday. We'll see how that goes. How do you explain this punishment, this elephant in the room of the book of Joshua? The first answer, and this is a biblical answer, this is not me, well, I wonder what a good answer would be. Straight out of scripture. I mean, how can I answer incorrectly when I'm using God's words to give the answer? The first answer is what we see here in Joshua is God's punishment upon sin. Now, this is a this is a foundational doctrine of the Bible. It says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That means you Get paid what you worked for, you deserve it. The just what I deserve for sin in my life is death. That's just a really rock-solid biblical foundational principle that is, that is just gone too much from church scenes today. But it's not like, oh, there's one little verse that may be mentioned that. It's a dominant theme in, in Scripture. The foundation is laid in Genesis chapter 3 with the story of, of Adam and Eve. We see that the punishment for sin given to Adam and Eve and to all mankind, it was and it is death. And this wasn't just some random thing. This is what God said. This is it. God's sovereign choice. Death is the punishment, the consequence of sin. Every day, there are 50,000, average of 50,000 people who die. Every day in this world, men, women, and children, all ages. And it all is from the sin of mankind. And then you go a, a few chapters later in Genesis, and from chapter 3 into just a few chapters later, and we, we see this story of Noah and the flood and how God put to death in the flood all human beings. Men, women, and children. 
with the exception of eight people in the ark. And so I realized, man, if I got a problem with the book of Joshua, then why don't I have a problem even more so? This is Joshua's just a, a little microcosm of the world. And Noah's story is the whole world. The story of the flood is not just a story of a bunch of cute animals on a cruise. It's a tough story. And this theme of sin and death that I mentioned here that I believe is reflected in our stories in Joshua, it's not like, well, there's a couple of obscure passages in the Bible that could be interpreted in various ways and maybe we've got this right, maybe we don't have this right. This is just incredibly clear. It's from the beginning of the Bible to the end. We see it all throughout Scripture and it all culminates into the New Testament with the description of sin's ultimate punishment of eternal death. And the Bible says that's regarding the majority of mankind, which Jesus in Scripture refers to as hell. And Jesus says this is a judgment that he, Jesus, will carry out. And so those who would say, man alive, what I'm reading here in the Old Testament is not the Jesus I know of in the New Testament that individual is not reading their Bible. That individual does not know Jesus. They know a Jesus that's derived from the preferred fantasy of their mind. And so, the first answer is the taking of human life here in Joshua, though it's painful. I didn't get up in the morning and say, oh man, I get to teach on this today. It's hard. Like Bob said, we cringe. But it's regarding the punishment of God upon the sins of these people. That's what the Bible tells us. And so, for example, if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, we might make the mistake of thinking that all of these people that were living in the land of Canaan when the Israelites came in, that they were just good, nice people minding their own business. But listen to the description. I've only got a portion of the verse there in Deuteronomy as I read verses 9 through 12. These are... These are um, Moses' instructions led by God to the people. It says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable. Abominable, that's pretty serious. If you've got to think NIV, you've got detestable. The abominable, detestable practices of those Oh, excuse me, I just lost. Of those nations. That means the people that live here in this area. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For anyone who does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now listen to this last section. And because of these abominations... The Lord your God is driving them out before you. This was a culture of, of, of people of an occult, demonic lifestyle and culture with immorality, if you study their history, immorality off the charts, with violence off the charts to the point of burning to death their children. The righteousness of God and His holiness 
And I think one of the reasons we read this and we have a problem with it is because we don't grasp, we don't understand, and we underestimate God's righteousness and God's holiness. His righteousness and his holiness cannot in his justice turn a blind eye that what was happening to what was happening among the people here. If it did, if his eyes did turn from this, what kind of God would he be? Therefore it says, because of these Detestable practices, God is driving you out. That's why what we see happened in the book of Joshua was happening. And so what you see happening here in Joshua is that God's chosen method of punishing these people was through the Israelites. And it's all throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, you see how God uses others. He uses other people to carry out such punishments and it's through battles and wars read scripture he even did it upon his own people in the in the Babylonians and the Assyrians he brought them in through battle and wars to punish the Israelites and so here we see he's using the Israelites to do this upon the people of Canaan and so here's where I had a real problem I mean, I got a problem all over these stories. And I should. I shouldn't go, oh, I love this. Give me more. No, I shouldn't like this. You shouldn't either. Here, here's where I had a problem. I'm not comfortable with it. But it's a little bit easier for me to swallow. Okay, 50,000 people die because of sin every day. Men, women, and children. That's tough, but it, okay. I'm, I, I'm not comfortable with the flood, but all right. Even with hell. Okay, the reason I can somewhat wrap my brain around those three situations because God's not saying, Eddie, you do that for me, all right? That's like, God, that's your business, all right? But all honesty, I'm not sure I could have obeyed Joshua had I been one of his soldiers, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to say that or not, but I'm just being real. I'm, I'm not sure I could have obeyed him. If he had given me a sword and said, Eddie, God has commanded me and commanded us to go to this town and take out everyone and everything in it that breathes. Let's go. I don't think I could have done it. Am I a coward? Honestly, I would have questioned Joshua's sanity. Just like some of the Russian soldiers are questioning their commander. Are we really supposed to be doing this? Has, has Joshua lost his mind? Is he really hearing from God, I would have questioned that. So that's why, and you go back and read it. We studied it because I didn't completely understand it. Now I get it. In, in um, where are we? We're in Joshua. In Joshua chapter 3, there's a story of the crossing of the Jordan River. And there's a lot of reasons for that story of the crossing of the Jordan River. But one of the primary reasons for the story of the crossing of the Jordan River, it says, God says, so that Joshua would be exalted in all the eyes of the Israelites. And so that the Israelites would look and see what happened as it's being led by Joshua. And the Israelites would know, this guy's from God. This is my chosen leader, just like he was from Moses. He is obeying my commands, not some rogue, insane man. Okay, I get that, but still, man, I don't know. 
But then it gets harder for me. Do you really have to take out the women and children? That's the harder part. And I don't know, maybe, I mean, why is it I'm not so concerned about them taking out the men, but I'm really struggling with them taking out the women and the children. And honestly, I worked hard to try to figure out why it didn't say that. (laughs) I did. I couldn't conclude that it doesn't say that. Now, there are those who have, and there are those who will say, okay, okay, you got to understand this language that's being written of. This is the common battle narrative of the day. These are battle idioms. These are exaggerations. This is rhetorical bravado. This is hyperbole trash talk. What we see here, these are exaggerative descriptions to make a point that we totally took them out. But it's to be understood figuratively speaking just like if I say yesterday I was outside it started raining cats and dogs of course I don't mean it literally was raining cats and dogs it was just really raining and so what the language here really means is they just Israelites really took them out really defeated them oh I would like to land there in my understanding of this story but I I can't if I'm honest to the text so while it may be chivalrous of me to think so kindly of the women, I think it's a mistake to see these women as women who were in the kitchen with bows and aprons that were cooking biscuits, homemade biscuits, and making apple pies. Read the history of the nation of Israel. It was the women in Canaan more than the men who through their seduction were pulling Israelites away from God into immorality and idolatry. Okay. All right, I get that. But the children? Wow. Why don't y'all talk about that in your life groups? Man, what do you do about that? Let me toss out three thoughts. I'm going to do them really quickly, so that's probably going to be unfair. This is where I wrestled with, with the taking out of these children. Number one, and, 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 and you can disagree, and you probably will. Just don't dislike me. Uh, well, if you do, I guess that happens. Number one, I believe no child who died before the age of accountability would die guilty before God. And therefore, every child that would have or did die, died in the eternal embrace of the loving Father. Secondly, only God knows what these children would have turned out to be growing up in such a culture. Thirdly, and there's a lot to say about this. It's probably not fair that I'm just, here they are. Thirdly, I'm certain of this, any child whose heart would have been, whose heart would be as an adult, open and receptive to God in faith, God, without question, I have no doubt about this, God would have spared them and saved them. And that's where we're gonna, what we're going to see next week. In God's preference. In God's provision. But I say all that about the children. I say all this about the women. I say all this about punishment. And I'm just still 
struggling. But I think we should. We shouldn't read this and, and conclude, and I don't want you to conclude, okay, I get it, that's good, I, I'm good with all of this, I feel so much better now, you shouldn't feel better about this. But this is where the book of Joshua fits into the larger overarching story of the Bible. And that larger, larger overarching story is Jesus. Bob, you nailed it with your words at communion. So I'm just going to give you a little sneak peek into next week's lesson. Another response to this elephant in the room that really helps me is to understand God's provision for sin in Christ. You see, thankfully the story doesn't end here in Joshua chapter 12. If it did, it would be ridiculously depressing. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 does not end with the wages of sin is death. But it continues to read, listen to this, listen to this, the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has made a provision for sin in Christ. And I've shared this illustration with you before. It's just like a jeweler who wants to sell you his diamond. What does he do? He lays out a black cloth and it's against the backdrop of that black cloth that you see the incredible brilliance of the diamond. And it is here against the backdrop of the darkness of sin and its punishment and these stories that Jesus is brought in and introduced and laid on the darkness of this backdrop and there we see his brilliance the story of the gospel is good news only because of the bad news I I finally start figuring out a little bit why it is I sing about his amazing grace when I first understand that I'm a wretch lost. And so as I ask the question, how in the world could God have done this? How could he have taken these lives? If I were honest, I would ask the question, why has he not yet taken my life? For I too, like these people in Canaan, stand before God just as guilty in my sin why am I still breathing today there's an amazing answer to that question it's because of his great love for me that he sent his son to take my place in death that I deserved he took it on the cross he conquered death by rising from the dead this is where the gospel is brought into this story now if you're thinking, if you're paying attention, then you should ask at this point, okay, that's great. I love that, Eddie. And that's really nice that he loves me and he died for me to save me. But did he not also love these people? Did he not want for them too to be saved? He did. He did. We're going to see that next week in the remaining answers to this elephant in the room. I just can't cover this all today. It's the elephant in the room in the book of Joshua that we would prefer 
not to see. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. It's not there. To ignore it. But God has put it there in Scripture because he wants us to see it. So that through the darkness of these stories, we might see the brilliance of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to which these stories are pointing. That we might, as the function of this text is, fall at the feet of Jesus and surrender our lives to him and live our lives following him and taking the light of the gospel. We'll see this next week. The battle that we are called to now as a church into a world of darkness to those who do not know him. I believe that's where God is leading us here in Joshua. May we follow his lead. Whatever that looks like for you individually and personally and practically. Let's pray. Stand with me if you would. Father, I'm asking you now in this prayer to do what I just can't do. I can't point my fingers at individuals and what this means for you and what this means for you. But Holy Spirit, would you please take these words that are sharper than a double-edged sword and use them to penetrate deeply into our hearts, the innermost parts of who we are, and speak. Open our ears to hear whatever it is you're trying to say to us individually or as a group, as a church. Open our hearts to receive it. And may that overflow with how we live our lives to you. And may it overflow in us taking this incredible message of the gospel to a world of Canaanites who do not know you. As we continue now in this prayer song, we just want to offer the opportunity for us to pray together. Our shepherds are here to come and pray with you. If you'd reach out to them, they may come to you. Um, or if you just know someone here that's come this morning and they're sad, they're carrying a heavy burden, or they just need a hug and encouragement, I want to encourage you to be bold, step out of your seat and go give them a hug and pray with them. Or if you're that person, to reach out. Let's offer up this prayer in song and prayer together to God. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.